So, um, so just so you know, we're going to go over the popular view. I'm going to say some things that are really good about it. There are some things that are really good about it, but then I'm going to mostly go on to how the Christian view of shame and the biblical view of shame and the historical view of shame and the anthropological view of shame are all way more complicated than that in ways that we can understand. They're not too complicated to understand, but they're very, very necessary for things like human community and families and parenting and friendships and all those sorts of things. Does that make sense? Okay. So, in this session, we're going to go over the popular view of shame and its remedies, the historical view of shame and its meanings, and the gospel view of shame and its healings. Okay, that sounds kind of like a preacher, right? Okay, um, the first thing is the popular view of shame and its remedies. Now, most of you probably already know, if you came to this session, that the, a University of Texas at Houston um, scholar named Brene Brown is kind of like king and queen of this whole thing. She's written um, one book five times, and it talks m mainly about shame and the research that she's done. Now, most of the research, now shame is um, notoriously difficult to research because it's a complicated human phenomenon. In fact, Brene Brown says in one of her books or one of her talks, I can't remember, she said, I said, I, I told my mentors and stuff I was gonna research shame and they said, listen, everybody who tries to research, research shame, it destroys their career. Now, the reason it destroys their career is because it's very hard to research in a way that's scientifically valid. The way Brown does research is she does what's called qualitative research, meaning she does very in-depth surveys and she does lots of them. So imagine like a focus group for whether or not you like a new possible cereal and like talking with you really in-depth about it, right? And then doing that with like as many people as she possibly can. Does that make sense? What that does, now, is it scientific? Yes. And... No, depending on how you define science in your head. Does that make sense? It's very good at understanding where people are at, what they're willing to report, how they feel, and those sorts of things. It's very good for that. It may not be good at like, what is a trans historical cultural definition of shame and how it operates sociologically? Right? That you're not studying that. What you're studying is how people feel, how what they think, how they're using words how those are interacting with their life and their internal, like their self-talk stuff that they can report. Does that make sense? So reporting science, science based on surveys and reporting, has certain strengths, has a lot of weaknesses. Okay, does that make sense? So um, within the Christian world, Kurt Thompson is probably the most famous guy right now with his book, The Soul of Shame. And um, Michael Cusack has a fairly popular podcast. His book, Surfing for God, focuses on sexual addiction, but sexual addiction is in a lot of ways really wrapped up with self-contempt and shame, and so his book is fairly well known as well. Both of these people use what I would call the popular view of shame, but not as... It, but both of them have a wider biblical framework, so they add more to it. Does that make sense? All right, great. Um, whereas Brene Brown is coming straight out of a, a secular school of social work which has a lot of assumptions built in ethically. Does that make sense? For example, in her book, she never discusses ethics, like why you would believe something is good or bad. It's just all assumed that you, whatever a social worker thinks is good and bad. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, now, why do I say popular rather than the scholarly? Well, here's the thing, because it is popular. Even if you go to a school of social work right now, you don't read Brene Brown's scientific papers, you read her popular books. Everybody reads the popular books. Pastors read the popular books. Therapists read the popular books. Students read the popular books. Frankly, scholars mostly read the popular books. Does that make sense? And in these books, Brown says over and over again, the science, the data, the science, the data, the science, the data. But if you get like her last book, Atlas of the Heart, she says science and data so many times. But you will look fairly in vain for them in the footnotes, the science in the footnotes. Mostly what's in the footnotes is tweets, Vox articles, things like that. Um, there are some scholarly papers quoted, but just not that many. Partly, and then when she actually tells you what you should think, or like, here's how you should look at it, she tends to quote secular Buddhist scholars, especially in her chapter on shame. Because 
Buddhists talk about self-talk a lot, right? And in some ways really helpfully, okay? So what, what I'm concerned about is not what everybody's view is in the cloister of the library when they write it in their scholarly papers. What I'm interested in is what normal people end up thinking when your theory gets out into the population. Does that make sense? So um, I'm interested in not the nuance of the scholarly literature, but the impression left on the people and practitioners seeking to procure and offer healing. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, um, the context of Brown's research and when shame gets talked about is what a person does and how they respond when they experience reproach. That is not Brene Brown's um, language. That's my language, but that's what she's describing. So a human being, something indicates to a human being what they're doing wasn't good enough. Either somebody says it or somebody's body language shows it, but in some way, a feeling of reproach or a statement that you were not just good enough comes to you. What happens? What happens when that happens, right? Now, the scope of that for Brown and the popular view is what you might call love, connection, and self-talk. The main focus is, can you, the things the human being needs to flourish from the social work perspective is love, connection, and self-talk. Now, um, here's the thing about Brown's work. Brown attempts to define love in her work, and she does it this way. She says in Daring Greatly, which is one of her books, we cultivate love, okay, so... This as an, I'm a very, okay, so if you believe in the witchcraft of the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 5, okay? So I'm analytic, and whenever somebody starts a definition with we cultivate, it makes me want to spit blood, okay? Just to be clear. But this is how, this is, this is her definition, okay? She says, we cultivate love when we allow our most vulnerable and powerful selves to be deeply seen and known, and when we honor the spirit, the, the spiritual connection that grows from that offering with trust, respect, kindness, and affection, Love is not something we give or get. It is something that we nurture and grow, a connection that can only be cultivated between people when it exists within each one of them. We can only love others as much as we love ourselves. Shame, blame, disrespect, betrayal, and the withholding of affection damage the roots with which love grows. And love can only survive these injuries if they are acknowledged, healed, and rare. And on the same page, she says, my motivation was, that is in writing the definition of love, to start a conversation about what we need and want from love. I don't care if I'm wrong, which I just feel like is the wrong attitude when you're writing a definition, but let's have some conversations about the experience that gives meaning to our lives. Okay, so I try to, I try to like honestly come up with a definition from her work that is actually a definition. And saying it in words she might if she decided to be clear enough to give us one. Okay, so if you put together these things, um, and she says self-love is required. It would be something like this. Love is the experience of a fulfilling connection of being deeply known, made possible by self-love. Which means this. Love is a kind of connection. You might say it's a fulfilling connection. Which means if love, connection, and self-talk are the goal, we're really just talking about connection and self-talk. Love is a good connection. Does that make sense? A good and fulfilling one that's stable. All right, now... Um, the way she outlines this is that there's essentially four res responses to reproach. That if something goes wrong and it, it implicates disapproval towards you, what happens in you? And she basically says there's four things that can happen. Guilt, shame, humiliation, and embarrassment. Do I have a flowchart? Okay, okay, so here's the flowchart. Okay, so reproach triggers self-reproach. So somebody says you're not good enough, and I go, oh, maybe I'm not good enough. Okay, so now I go through this process. One, does this thing that I didn't do well enough, does it matter? right? If it doesn't matter, and it's like ubiquitous to all human beings, like I fall, right? 
I get up, I laugh. That's just embarrassment, right? It doesn't create emotional trauma. You're going to get over it. Hopefully everybody laughs. You're just like everybody else. It's fine. Maybe it creates a little humility, right? So if it does matter, the question is, is the reproach justified? Is this person telling me that I did something wrong justified? Or maybe they did something wrong, right? If I don't think it's justified, if it's wrong for me to be reproached, then she calls that humiliation. Somebody tries to humiliate me, and I go, and so the proper response to that is no, right? I push back on it. I don't allow myself to feel, feel feelings of guilt or shame. Does that make sense? It's their job. They're trying to shame me. It's my job to shame the shame, as it says in Hebrews 12, though she would not be that theological. Okay, then, and then the question is, is the problem with me as a person? If it's not a problem with me as a person, I just, maybe I screwed up. It matters. It's consequential. I'm, I'm ju it's justified to say I did something wrong, but like, I'm not the thing I did wrong, right? I feel bad. I want to do better. I'm going to do better. It's guilt, right? If it's like, oh, the reason this all happened is because I suck. I am an irreparably broken person, right? That's what she calls shame. And that indicates what she would call negative self-talk, meaning you start basically creating a self-atonement for yourself. You start punishing yourself in some way thinking perversely that's going to make things better, right? When it, the person you did the thing wrong to, you're not help, you're not doing anything. Like, you're not, like, making the thing better, like, helping them. You're not creating restitution or, like, you're just really just hurting yourself, which is probably going to draw you away from that person, which is causing them to distrust you more. It creates this, like, really bad feedback loop that hurts everybody. Because of that, Brown's argument is, sorry, I need to go, uh -huh. Okay, so then, so she lays that out. So then she goes to this diet of guilt and shame. She's like, this distinction is really important. Guilt is, I did bad, I'll do better. And so therefore, guilt can be a good thing. It's like, I'm going to live up. Now, of course, she's a social worker, so she doesn't believe in objective morality. So she, she says, obviously, there's some social workers that believe in objective morality, but secular schools of social work don't talk about objective morality. So the idea is, is I didn't live up to my own values. They are my values. I believe in them. I'm going to try to live up to them better in the future, right? From a psychological perspective, they don't care where you got your values from. What they care about is the distance between where you feel you are and what you feel your own values are because that creates brokenness inside of yourself. Does that make sense? So guilt is like, I'm going to do better, right? Shame is I am bad. I'm unworthy of connection. And it's always unproductive because it leads to self-destructive, isolating self-talk. So because the scope is love, connection, and self-talk, shame produces, by this definition, bad results in those categories. The bad self-talk makes you feel like you're unworthy of connection, so you isolate rather than move invulnerably towards connection. And the result of that is that you don't experience fulfilling connections, i.e. love. Does that make sense? Therefore, what you do with shame is you reject it. Shame is universally bad, therefore you reject it. Okay? That's really, that's really important. Okay? Now, okay. So, therefore, the self-treatments of shame, what do you do if when you recognize shame? One is, is that you pursue connection by expressing vulnerability to a trustworthy other, right? So, like, if I, let's say, let's say something happens at work and somebody's like, Nick, you just, just suck at being a pastor. And I go like, oh, that hurts. But I have, let's say I have a good, fulfilling connection with my wife. I call my wife and I say, listen, Lexi, I get, this is what people said to me. It really hurt my feelings. I just don't know if I can do this anymore. And she's like, oh, crap. Man, I know how that feels. So, like, I reach out in vulnerability. And then she gives me at least what Brown calls cognitive empathy, meaning she understands and has experienced the same feeling I've experienced, right? She doesn't have to be like, she's, she doesn't have to have the exact same feeling I'm having based on the exact same experience. I'm feeling embarrassed, humiliated, right? I call her. She, she's been embarrassed and humiliated in her life, right? She kind of channels that and says what, you know, you would want to say to somebody that would make them feel better, right? And that produces connection, 
and connections that are fulfilling is love, and that's what life is all about. Brene Brown says, right? Does that make sense? The second is to come and practice, um, practice common humanity, which is believing that, like, this thing that I'm struggling with, you're struggling with. Like, this is, like, I'm not alone. I'm not like this defective person over here and everybody over there is functional. Therefore, I'm isolated and terrible, right? She's like, that's just not true. We all have a shared humanity. Now, listen, that's a very Christian view. That we're all simultaneously justified or bearing the image of God and sinners and broken, right? Um, and that in that, we're all the same, right? And so she's like, listen, you've got to believe that you share humanity with us and therefore share a shared dignity, right? And the third is develop mindfulness. See and observe thoughts and feelings for what they are. So instead of just like feeling the shame and it's just like having authority to tell you whatever it wants to, you're like, oh, that's shame. Hi, shame. What are you trying to tell me? Yeah, no, right? Like, so mindfulness is generally, it's generally considered a Buddhist concept, but it's basically the idea of being capable of observing what's happening inside of you while it's happening so that you can decide what you're going to do with it rather than it just controlling you. Does that make sense? So there's lots of other words for that, but that's kind of the way it's often referred to within the council process. And therefore, being resilient over the long term would be to build mindfulness, understanding shame and how it's triggered in you personally, right? Secondly, third, secondly is clinical awareness, or critical awareness. So like when that self-reproach message comes in, you can work it through that flow chart accurately. Is this embarrassment? Is this humiliation? Is this guilt or is this shame? And you can do that accurately so you know what you're dealing with. You're not just jumping to shame every time anything bad happens. And then third is speak it or share your feelings of shame. That is engage in vulnerability with a trusted other so that you can receive cognitive empathy and have a fulfilling connection. And in those fulfilling connections and in better self-talk rather than worse self-talk, Brown believes that we can overcome shame. Does that make sense? Now, that's not crazy, right? Like that's, in fact, a lot of people find it really helpful and it's really simple. Like if you're a therapist, like it's pretty easy to like analyze that happening to somebody helping them attend to it, be like, do you see what's happening here, right? And then saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. Like, that's, like, anybody can do that, right? And le- just like in pastoral ministry, in counseling ministry, the average IQ is 100, okay? So not every counselor, just like not every pastor, is the sharpest knife in the drawer. You can't give them extremely complicated methodologies of counseling. It's got to be pretty simple, straightforward, and diagnostic. You feel this way, here's the therapy. You feel this way, here's the therapy. And I assure you that is how counseling works, okay? And most pastoral ministry as well. So here's some, here's some good things about the popular view, right? They describe human feelings well. The qualitative research Brown does ha- really brings out how people really feel. You want to hear about how men and women feel relative to shame and guilt in their lives? Her books, I describe that really well, I think, right? Secondly is it highlights a huge cultural problem. Listen, this idea of se- this, this self-reproach that Brown calls shame is rampant culturally. It probably has been rampant in human society since the fall, but there are certain dynamics in society like girls looking at Instagram from when they're nine years old or like guys like not having like positive competitive environments to grow up in and to deal and figure out their masculinity and so on. There's like there's lots of different dynamics in our culture that have changed fairly recently. Broken families are a huge cause of this because you abandon a child and they don't really understand why. You could say, well, mom and I, dad didn't get along. And they think something is wrong with them. There's something irreparably wrong with them. And it hits them in a place they have a really hard time getting at. And so there is an enormous amount of this shame in the culture. Does that make sense? Okay, third is um, it gives a clear self-talk diagnostic, right? If you can say, oh, that feeling's shame. I feel like I feel like I'm a terrible person. I'm not worth loving. That's shame. Okay, I need to say to myself, I have dignity. I have a shared humanity. God loves me, right? And I can move towards these people in vulnerability. I can share and speak my shame. They can give me cognitive empathy, and we can, in this fulfilling connection, I can be healed. Does that make sense? That's simple. That's clear. You can do that. You know what I'm saying? 
Um, fifth is, is that it values vulnerability and connection. I mean, that's very Christian, right? Confessing your sins one to another, receiving healing, having meaningful relationships, treating others like those, your brothers and sisters. That kind of dynamic of the, of the importance of vulnerability and connection is, is really big in Christian faith and in Christian salvation and in the church and in how God loves us and how we're one with Christ and so on, right? I'm highlighting a scarcity mentality. The beginning of a number of books says that a lot of this comes from a scarcity mentality, that you believe that you're not enough. And in believing you're not enough, you believe that you're, like, broken somehow. Now, I, I, the way Jill and I will usually say it is what we tend to find with people is they believe that they're not enough and too much at the same time. Right? Now, the reason why that's important is because the too much part is important because when people feel sh that shame and they try to reach out in that vulnerability— what they find out is they emotionally overload other people, and those people move away from them. One of the, if you read, if you just go to like Amazon and go to like Daring Greatly and read through the comments that people have, the way people have reviewed Brown's book, they're like, "Who is this white woman who doesn't have any problems?" Right? Like, like the example she gives in the book is like somebody sends her a bean email about like how the millions of dollars she's made, like she said something wrong in her book. And so, like, she said a cuss word, and then she called her husband or friend, and they were like, oh, girl, I get it. And then she wrote, like, not a terribly nasty email back. Like, that's her problems. They're like, what about if you've, like, you are, like, an incel dude who wants to kill all women, and you're living in your basement? Like, how do you reach out in vulnerability? Like, if you're like that, you literally don't have any friends. Like, a lot of the young men that I'll end up counseling, I'll be like, who is a close friend that you can really be vulnerable with? Right? Middle-aged men. Who's a close friend? Can you really be vulnerable with your wife? Can you really tell your wife how you feel? No. Have you ever? No. Like this idea that, so, so scarcity is a real thing. People feel like they're not enough. The problem is, is that when they try to reach out, they feel like they're too much. And especially if this developed in childhood, oftentimes, you like your dad just re reacted really badly when you tried to sh come to him with something or something, right? And so it's kind of like, oh wait, I'm not just not enough. When I reach out in vulnerability, I'm actually too much. And I think that unless you deal with both of those at the same time, you really aren't going to lead to the kind of connections and therefore fulfilling connections of love that Brene Brown is talking about. Now, I do not believe fulfilling connections is a good definition of love, which we will get to, but fulfilling connections are great, right? Okay. Um, seeks to be compassionate. I, I think she's a really compassionate person. Now, I think that her compassion is false compassion, objectively speaking. But I think phenomenally, like psychologically speaking, it's coming from an empathetic frame. I think she's trying to do good to people. And I think on some level, it does. I think knowing this stuff and applying it to your life will make your life feel better than worse. In that sense, it is compassionate, right? And then um, it's diagnostically simple and clear, which I already said. Okay, so there's a number of good things about this. I think that in mentoring relationships, even in your own life, there's stuff that you can apply from this. Like, when you realize that, like, you're talking to yourself in a way that is not honoring to God's dignity in you, that he's purchased in Christ because you feel like you're not enough and, like, this reproach you deserve is because you're irreparably terrible. Like, when you recognize that, that is not the voice of the Holy Spirit, right? And in changing your self-talk and reaching out to somebody who can reground you to reality, if you have people you can do that with, is good, right? One of the reasons the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church have had formal confession all these years is to make sure everybody in God's church had someone they could do that with, even anonymously, because they're a human being. It doesn't really have to matter the individual human being that they are to be able to go and to speak to somebody and say, this is how I feel. This is what I did. This is the guilt I'm dealing with. This is how terrible I feel like I am. And to have the priest be able to speak the words of God to them of encouragement and divine empathy and to say, this is who you are. This is what you're called to. This is what you can be. This is the forgiveness you can receive. Um, you know, as Protestants, sometimes we really make fun of that. 
but the way we're supposed to make fun of it, if it's even worth doing, is because we love each other so much and we are a nation of priests so much together that we all take our priestly work so importantly that she has all of us as priests. Not just, not just one priest. We're all priests to her. She could confess to any of us and receive the same loving absolution back from us. Does that make sense? And But here's the thing. Are we doing that in Protestant churches? I don't think so. No. Might as well have confession hour, right? Okay. So um, let's move on. Okay. So I think that there's six major problem areas with this view of shame. And I want to go through these. The, the handout for this that I did not print for all of you is 24 pages long. So um, I just didn't want to make that much paper. Um, so let's, uh, let's kind of go through these a little bit. The first is, is that the popular view. I, I think that popular vocabulary, if you're going to have a view and you're going to tell people popularly, the vocabulary has to be interdisciplinary. You can't use a word that works for your discipline and exactly what you're doing in your discipline. That's a word everybody's going to use for, an, for like a complex dynamic where your view doesn't make sense in anybody else's field. Brene Brown's view of shame doesn't work in the anthropology department. You study human societies, that is not how they use the word shame. That is not what shame is. Um, you go to the Bible. That's not what shame is in the Bible at all. And so the, this word that's being used in the word, and, and not just the word shame, but really all the words she uses. The word guilt doesn't really mean guilt. The word shame doesn't mean what human beings mean by shame. The word love doesn't mean what human beings mean by love. The word connection, but, but even there, it's like, it's, it's, it's weird because it, like, it makes presumptions that people almost exist within these like relational circles where they have people they can really have those connections with, which is really hard for some people. And then trust uh, and worthiness. That word worthiness is a, there's a fallacy built into that because there's two kinds of worthiness that matter for a relationship, okay? Okay, I don't think I have a slide for this. I think I have to tell you. So um, what I would say is as Christians, we should insert a different word for all of these words. Because we should not be redefining words. I, th I think her book, Atlas of the Heart, is the worst offender of this. Especially when she says, I'm a word populist. I want to use words the way people use them. But words matter. For example, she talks about an author that uses the word empathy and says, look, empathy is a two-edged sword. If you have goodwill and you know how to empathize with people, you can really minister to them. But you can also super manipulate them. Right? And she's like, well, that's not what empathy means. Empathy means using your ability to emotionally connect with another person positively. But empathy does not mean that. It means empathos, being able to enter into or, or duplicate the pathos or the passion or the suffering of another person, to be able to enter into it psychologically. And you can use that for good or evil. Right? And some of you may not know this, there's a book out called Against Empathy where the author says, look, some of the, some of the most um, benevolent people on planet Earth are psychologically psychopaths, okay? They have no empathy at all. But cognitively, they've decided convictionally that human beings are worthwhile, that loving them is important, suffering is bad, they have millions of dollars, and they give millions and millions of dollars for the good of other people, even though they have no feelings about them. You have to, one of the, one of the problems with, you see, when you get rid of objective morality, you are left with romanticism. You get rid of empiricism, romanticism is what's left, meaning your feelings dictate reality. If your feelings dictate reality, you have to have a principle that orders morality. The only thing you've got is intershared human feeling, i.e. empathy. So empathy becomes the dynamic by which all morality is created, and it's terrible for that. It's so bad. It's like saying that breathing is all of metabolism. It's, it's just like... But when you wipe out objective categories for morality by which other people could be reproached, 
you have to come up with a system of morality that's very minimalized, right? And what ends up happening is you start redefining words in ways that are really difficult. So here's what I would encourage for Christians. I would replace, replace guilt because guilt, see, that's a problem. Guilt can be a feeling, but it's also an external objective reality. Right? A society can judge a person who's committed a crime guilty. That's not a subjective reality inside the criminal. It's a shared reality relative to how he has acted in the society based on what he's done and how he's hurt people. So I would say the internal reality that you realize you're guilty is called conviction. Right? The sense that, like, I know I did something wrong, and I know I'm responsible. And, and here's, the, here's the benefit. That's also a Bible word. <laughs> right? For um, shame... I would encourage you to replace that with self-contempt or self-hatred. Now, the reason why most psychologists don't want to do that is because self-contempt or self-hatred can imply that the person feeling it is at fault. Does that make sense? Right? Especially self-hatred, right? It's like, why are you hating yourself? You're a hater. I'm not a hater. I'm an empathetic person. You're like, well, okay, now, here's the issue. One, that's true, okay? So, like, if I tell somebody, so, um, I was, I was talking with a, a woman not too long ago. Jill and I were, were counseling with her, and, I, and it was really clear. I said, listen, what you're suffering from is self-hatred or self-contempt, right? Um, you, feel, you feel a ton of personal shame, and it's coming from the fact that, fact that you believe you, that you are wrong. You are bad, right? And she's like, I don't know. And I said, yeah, you are. You just, like, you just told me you hated yourself, like, in a number of different ways. You're too sophisticated to say, I hate myself, but that's what you're saying. And... On one level, you want to say, look, the story you just told me about your life, I totally understand how the, the five-year-old version and the eight-year-old version and the 12-year-old version of you got that message and internalized that message. But now you are the perpetrator of that message on you. Your dad was the first one. You know, your mom was the second one. Your teacher, the people who bullied you, they were perpetrators of that message. But the reason why it's still in you is because you are telling yourself that message. Because here's the thing. The, the reality of the self-talk thing is, Brown is right, right? You have to change how you are talking to yourself. You are perpetrating it on yourself. So on one level, you do want the person who's seeking healing to take res responsibility. But see, in schools of social work, you're not supposed to say the word responsibility ever. And I'm not, you might think I'm being hyperbolic. I'm not. Like, I had, we had the word responsibility in something, and Jill's like, we should change it to ownership. Because she's in the UW School of Social Work right now. My wife, same thing. She's the UW-Milwaukee UW School of Social Work right now. Same deal. You can't say responsibility, right, because it blames the victim. But you're like, well, but maybe people's lives only get better when they— In fact, like, if, you, if we all were, had drinking problems and we went to A, what's, like, the first lesson? It may you have a problem and take responsibility for your problem, right? And here's the thing. Those people are some of the most abused people there are. But what, what, the, what AA and the 12-step program notice, notices and understands is, you're, you're, who cares? You're never going to get any better if you don't take responsibility for it. Is it your fault? No. But is it your responsibility? Well, it's nobody else's. Nobody else is going to come and save you, right? And so in that sense, functionally, it has to be your responsibility. Does that make sense? Okay, so in terms of um, love, I would just call that affection. The idea of a fulfilling connection with another person, I would call that affection or adoring another person. Love is a virtue. I'll get to that in a bit. But love is a virtue. It's a commitment of the will to the true good of another. It's not just a feeling. Um, and it's also not just a, oh, an act. It is a, a veer, a strength that we have to treat other people. Because here's the thing. Listen, I don't know how many of you had children. I have four. You don't always have a deeply fulfilling connection with them, depending on what they're going through. But you do have to commit yourself to the true, their true good, no matter what, no matter how they feel about you. 
even if the connection is very unfulfilling. Like I have, I have one child right now, and our connection is not very fulfilling for either of us, and I am still 100% committed to her true good. Do you understand? Because I love her. Th- this definition of love I find condescending and inhuman and really unhelpful. Okay, and then uh, for worthy, I would replace the word worthy with dignity. Because dignity is an objective category that we all have no matter how defective we are. So here's the problem. The problem with shame is you say, well, there's something wrong defective with me, which is why nobody wants me, right? Here's the problem. What do you do if that's true? You see, because like, see, Brown acts as though it's not true because she believes dignity is all that matters, right? And if dignity is all that matters, we all deserve relationships. But here's the thing. Other people have to consent to have the relationship with you. They have to believe it's worth it. So whether or not you are worthy in a relationship has two dynamics. One is, as a human, you have dignity. You should be treated a certain way. But nobody owes you a fulfilling connection, right? As a a dignified person, you deserve justice. But I can't say, well, because I'm a certain kind of person, Joe should have a fulfilling connection with me. He and I should have a relationship. Joe doesn't owe me a relationship. He's his own person, right? And so if if Joe doesn't find it worth it to have that relationship with me, or he is with lots of other people, then I don't deserve it. Does that make sense? So I need to believe I have dignity, but if when I interact with other people, they run, it may be I have to actually look at what is wrong with me, but actually believe it's not irreparable. Right? One of the things I think is a huge problem in Brown's work is there's never any discussion of character. Who you are that is part of your identity as it is now has it's been shaped, but could be shaped otherwise. Does that make sense? Because I know plenty of people in my church, especially younger people who've been abused by this culture, who are really hard to have relationships with. And their willingness to do the work of having relationships with other people is like this big. They have like no virtue of love really committing themselves to the true good of another person unless they like it all the time. And they are really hard to be around because they're super demanding. They expect everybody to think like them in every way. And so how many fulfilling connections do you think such a person creates? And the answer is none, right? And that kind of a person, I have to say to them, listen, you are worthy in the dignity sense. You are not worthy and it's worth it to other people sense, right? Because there's a certain kind of way in which we live by our hurts, which makes us very, very difficult to love and to be around. And that is our responsibility to ameliorate. Like part of being an ally to another person in a relationship is to make it less hard to care about you. I mean, that's, in some ways, that's all I'm ever doing relationally. Like in terms of like working on myself, I'm trying to make it less hard for every person that has a relationship with me, whether it's the person of God or everybody else, to, to be with me. Right? Okay, so worthy. Okay, there's lots of others we could talk about. Okay, so one of these, okay, I'll just say this because it just drives me nuts. She talks about how compassion, this is an ass of the heart, how compassion is like a good word about how like you share in the sufferings of others, but sympathy is this like really negative category where you look down on people. Okay. They're the same word. They're literally the same word. One is the Anglo-Saxon word. The other is the Latinized word. They're literally, exactly, etymologically, the exact same word. The one thing she gets right is that in writing, your writing almost always sounds stronger when you use the Anglo-Saxon word rather than the Latinized word. So kingly sounds stronger than royalty usually, right? But that's just like an English thing. Like she's supposed to be social. Okay. The next thing is, um, okay, where are we? Um, a healthy perspective on emotions 
has to reference objective realities, okay? So if you feel guilty, one of the ways that you're supposed to be interacting with that is to be able to look upon the thing that made you guilty. These, these relational words are supposed to have an external referent that is real, okay? To not understand that draws us more internalized and we're more spinning inside of ourselves while we're trying to become more emotionally healthy. But one of the big problems of emotional health right now is everybody's too in their heads and too self-referential. The best way to grow is to have an external reference point, right? And when it comes to guilt, it is the thing you did and its moral classification that is the external reference point. Does that make sense? In one of my other sessions, I'll say, one of the difference between psychotherapy and biblical counseling is in psychotherapy, the patient is the final referent. And in biblical therapy or biblical counseling, God is, is always the final external referent of the value or meaning of anything. Does that make sense? It's a really big difference. Both people are talking about feelings and what's going on and how you got here, but where your final defining referent is matters a lot. And with things like, like conviction is a form of guilt because you did something you're guilty of if your emotions are rightly calibrated, right? Same thing with shame. Shame is from shameful behavior. Like, you should be ashamed of yourself. Like, if somebody says, you should be ashamed of yourself. Like, either they're, they're trying to humiliate you. You should be like, well, actually, you got, like, Jesus being humiliated on the cross, he didn't actually deserve that. He didn't have to say, you're right. Does that make sense? So there's sometimes where people try to put shame on us, and we're supposed to reject it. But in a lot of cases, people are saying, you aren't governing yourself morally correctly. And I'm trying to help you regulate in this community thing that we have together, right? It, this is one of the strange things, because as a social worker, Brene Brown wants us all socially to get along better, but she has denuded the whole thing of social categories. The thing is so individualistic that it's all self-referential inside your own head which is like the death knell of having a real social relationships. And it makes, and this is the great irony, love impossible. Her philosophy that says and claims love is the greatest thing, the thing life is all about, the experience that gives meaning to our lives. From a Christian perspective, what we realize in terms of how people develop and how they order themselves and how they care for each other, it actually makes us so individualistic and self-referential that it makes real love impossible. It cuts the trunk of the very tree of the fruit she wants to enjoy. Right? Okay, keep, I got to keep going. Third is, psychologizing these things is reductive um, in terms of the human person and our relationship to society. So, one way to think about that is this. If you go to the Bible, and you just take, like, the old NIV, and you just search on the word shame, and you read every verse that has the word shame in it, Right? you would never get the idea that the definition of shame <laughs> is what Brene Brown says it is, right? Um, what shame is in the Bible in almost every verse is um, the, the absolute opposite of glory. So glorification is absolute triumph in every way on every dimension. And shame, or being put to shame, is absolute defeat and loss on every dimension. So it means slavery— Loss of the capacity for sexual consent. It means losing all your money. It means being torn down from your social position. It means losing your status in a society. It means, um, it means, it means losing everything to be put to shame. Because of that, shame um, is a defeat 
It's a disgrace. It's a dishonor. It's a humiliation and failure. It's an exposure. And therefore, shame is also a status. Shame is social by nature. It's not individualized. It is determined according to social norms. That means it requires a normativity. This is a huge problem in Brown's work and in secular social work and psychological work. Because, here's the thing, what is causing all of the mental problems that we're seeing skyrocketing, especially among the young? What do they think is creating that? Why, are, why, are, why is a trans kid so upset? Because we won't let them be themselves, right? The, pro, the, the reason all of us are having problems is we live in a society where we can't be ourselves. Do you understand? That's the philosophy. The problem with that is this, is that if that's the case, then we can't have anything we're utilizing among ourselves that is letting anybody in this society not be themselves. Does that make sense? And so if, if Spencer feels like in his heart, he's a liar. He, he playfully tells things that aren't true. And we're like, look, you got to tell each other the truth. That's normative for us. You see, Spencer can't be himself. And it's going to destroy him on the inside. He can't really live out his humanity. We're erasing him as a person, right? You see, when a society believes that if anybody needs something to be taken away in terms of normativity to be themselves, there is no limit to the number of things somebody will say, you have to get rid of this normative thing so I can be myself, which means you can't have any normativity at all. So there's actually a passage, and I think it's in Daring Greatly, where she talks about men feeling shame too. They just feel shame in reference to a different set of characteristics. And so she lists the characteristics, which includes things like self-reliance and working hard and hating gay people, okay, or like being very negative about homosexuality, right? And she's like, well, listen, I wouldn't want any man who lived according to that list, right? And so she just like wipes out the whole list. Like, guys, you just don't have to worry about that stuff, right? Here's the thing. Okay, like maybe the not liking like homosexuality or like being mean to gay people is something we can throw off. But sweetie, do you really want me to throw off self-reliance and hard work? I don't know any woman who's like, you know what? I wish my husband just didn't feel the weight of like working hard for us and wanting to be self-reliant and taking care of us and being strong and facing the world's difficulties. He should just be free of all that. We could just watch net more Netflix, right? It's like that guy who was on, I was on TikTok where he like, it seemed like, it didn't seem ironic where he's like, listen, people have to have, get a job to have a place to live, to eat food, to do this stuff. Like, like these are basic human necessities. I shouldn't have to like work my life away to get these things. You're like, dude, you're asking then for me to do it so that you don't have to do it. Like somebody's gonna have to be a grown up, right? And this idea that like, well, there's a list of things we should require from each other. And here's the problem. If we don't do that, then what happens? We can't trust each other. We can all be little expressive individualists, but what can I expect from a relationship with you? And what can you expect from me? And the answer is, we don't know. Right? In some ways, the only thing that is very clear is what we're supposed to give each other is universal, immediate affirmation. Okay? So what that means is, people can do whatever they want to you, and you have to tell them that they're fantastic for doing it. Okay? How long do you think that can last among people? Do you think that could lead to people, like, dividing into little ideological groups and creating new normativities in little smaller groups where they then hate everybody else or people living in their basements or only playing video games or only looking at people that they like in the subselected group on a... Do you see how it's all a self-fulfilling prophecy on this idea that you can't have normativity? This is why law precedes grace. It's not just to reveal sin. It's to be like, look, we owe each other justice. This is what drives me nuts about people culturally who stand up and say, we should just affirm everybody so everybody feels good. And then they take their hat and umbrella and they go to a march and they say, we need justice. 
And you're like, listen, sweetie, you're going to have to pick. Either there's a normativity that creates demands of justice that we inflict upon ourselves and each other, that are objective categories that we can discern and argue about, or we're all just affirming whatever everybody does. But affirmation and empathy is not a sufficient basis to build this justice normativity you want. you got to think this through a little more, right? Okay, hopefully this is helpful for you. Fourth is reductive psychology undermines normativity. Oh, we just covered that. Look at where we're at. Okay, and the five is reductive assessments leads to reductive treatments. Okay, um, if you go back to Aristotle, shame is a virtue. Shame is a virtue. Why would shame be a virtue? Because in Aristotle, every virtue had what was called sophrosyne, which was proper balance between two ends. So, if, so you could be too thin-skinned and everything threw you and everything made you feel terrible about yourself. Or you could be shameless so that when somebody told you you're doing something wrong, you should respond positively and say, you know what, you're right, you're right. You don't, you're like, you're, you're, as the Bible says, your glory is in your shame, like it says in Philippians 3, for people who fall into sin. Your mind gets confused, right? All of the book of Ezekiel, um, God calls the people lewd. What does lewd mean? It means like, you think the thing you're doing is good and that like you're strong because you don't you don't give in to all those moral categories and like you're you've risen above everything you're the ubermensch you're the superman right like but really the very thing you're glorying in is your shame and i'm gonna tear you down into that shame is what god says all through ezekiel that's the whole point right and so what happens is is that if we think that shame is just bad feeling about ourselves and we have to change our self-talk what happens is is that the structures by which we go okay wait a second Maybe my character isn't where it's supposed to be. Maybe I'm not offering things to other people in relationships. Maybe I am too self-centered in how I'm interacting. Maybe I only talk when I'm with, I'm with people and I never listen. Maybe that's why they don't want to just receive my vulnerable, like, statements all the time. Or maybe, like, maybe I need to grow up. Maybe I need to develop virtue, right? See, the problem with a values-based system that has no normativity is that it doesn't really have any values and nobody's getting shaped. The romantic view is, is that Men are born free and everywhere in chains, right? We're, we're the children of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Like, this is, the, this is what I, it frustrates me about critical theory. Critical theory was not created by African-Americans. It was created by dead white men from the continent rather than from Scotland and Upper Wales, okay? And, like, take your pick, but this idea that, like, um, that Rousseau had, that, like, romanticism, that we, like, just had to express our inner selves and that would really do it, is one of the most destructive philosophies that has ever been invented. He abandoned all of his children. He drove women insane. He, like, treated prostitutes like garbage. These are the men whose philosophies that we imbibe and treat as though they're worth something in this culture, rather than the man who did everything for you and died for you. Right? Like, this is why you're supposed to listen to your parents. Maybe they're idiots half the time, but literally, they gave their lives for you. So they get to talk. You understand? That's what Alcor Rousseau said. Okay, so, if you recognize that there's shamelessness and thin-skinnedness, right, Brown's category then falls, whoops, Brown's category then falls under thin-skinnedness and self-reproach. You're, you're too sensitive, you're too anxious, then your, your anxious reaction to that is self-reproach, right? So socially you're thin-skinned, and personally you're engaging in self-hatred and self-harm in your self-talk, and you need to deal with that because you're on the weakened side of the virtue. But you don't want to respond to that by saying, well, but all this shame is just bad, and jump to shamelessness. That's not a game. And I've seen that. 
I've seen that especially with young people who are so crippled by insecurity, so crippled by the self-talk that they just decide they're not going to listen to anybody. They're going to like take up their space in the relationship. They're going to blah, blah, blah. And they learn all these psychology words for that kind of thing and being assertive. And anybody, anybody confronts about anything, they say that you're gaslighting me. And like they come up with like this sophisticated like therapy talk and they use it as a weapon to attack everybody else and they're shameless. And morally speaking and spiritually speaking, they're no better off. They might be worse off because they've seared their conscience than when they were too thin-skinned. Does that make sense? And so when we reduce things like shame to these minimized categories, our treatments or how we try to grow or recover end up being reductive and harmful as well. Does that make sense? And then six, I think this might be one of the last ones, is um, reductive psychology undermines spirituality. You see, if you tell a young person, if, if, you, if you give a young person who's having some problems, a Brene Brown book, and, and she reads that shame is always bad, and then she reads in the Bible God shaming somebody, what's she going to think? Right? She's going to think God is bad. Right? Um, when the apostle says in 1 Corinthians, I say this to shame you. Right? What's the context? Right? There are these people in the church, and they're having these fights over money and problems. And he's like, listen, you should be able to find, like, a seven-year-old in your church who loves Jesus. You should be able to tell him your problem, and he should be able to tell you what to do, and then you should be able to have the humility and honesty to do it. And the fact that you can't, you have to go to pagan judges who worship Zeus and Aphrodite and have no clear moral system. As a believer, you should be ashamed of yourself right now. What's happening there? Is Paul gaslighting them? Is he, like, is he abusing them emotionally? Right? If you're a parent, can you say to your kid, you should be ashamed of yourself? Now, maybe not all the time. Maybe not such that you're, you're teaching that kid there's something irreparably wrong with them. But if in a moment, they should be able to look around at the other people and see what they have done to all these other people by their behavior and realize they have, they have done an injustice in all of these relationships. They're not living within a shared, loving social fabric, and other people are paying costs because of their behavior. They should be ashamed of themselves. And we, can't, we shouldn't take that motivational structure away. Now, um, therefore, when I do pastoral counseling, and so I would encourage you in this way too, when you're talking to somebody dealing with this, is I, I take people to 2 Corinthians 7. Okay, in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says, he talks about sorrow, and he distinguishes between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Okay, and he says worldly sorrow leads you basically to self-destruction and gloom. And godly sorrow leads you to productive actions. Usually social ones, like making restitution, re-entering into a relationship, forgiving or asking for forgiveness, and so on. Because you see, when we feel ashamed— and if we really deserve to feel ashamed, the next action we're supposed to take, you might start with self-talk, like, okay, this doesn't define me. But then the next question is, okay, I need to go out because shame is social. Now, here's the thing. What Brene Brown says is, when you feel shame, you believe you're unworthy of connection because there's something irreparably wrong with you. That's, that's, not, that's not really what shame means. Here's what shame means. Other people have just signaled to you that you are untrustworthy to be vulnerable with. That's what's happened. You have, you have breached the trust that is the basis of human relationships. And so they can't be vulnerable with you. It would be unwise. So what has, what has to happen is you have to reestablish trust with them. Does that make sense? Which requires things like acknowledgement, restitution, asking for forgiveness, changing. Does that make sense? And if you can restore that trust then you can have relationships of vulnerability. You can have deep, meaningful connections. 
you can have the experience of adoration and affection, and you can walk in love with other people. Does that make sense? All right, let me, when does this go till, Katie? 45, okay. So let me just stop there. That was kind of a lot, probably. And let's do some, let's do some Q&R, as they call it, or Q&A, whatever, yeah.